0: My name is Carl, by the way, and I'm one of the minister's own staff. I'm not normally not too late, um, but today, but you know, today is a, a happy Black History Month, and we're uh, taking some time to sort of reflect on some things um, about that. And I think it's um, uh, it's crucial. I love cultural affirmations, like anybody else. You know, achievements—they're great. Um, I think sometimes when you have those kind of affirmations about culture and achievements, uh, they could have an adverse effect of sometimes reducing uh, a population or a community to their achievements. Amen? Amen. And I think sometimes it's, uh, so today, in light of that, we're going to offer some reflections, some testimonies about how some of those voices of people of color are significant to us personally, and how they're significant to us as a community, which I think, quite frankly, is the more interesting argument, uh, if you want to keep it real with you.
1: Good morning. My name's Julie Short. And um, thank you, Carl, for the invitation to to speak today. I, I As I was researching, um, The history of the song Lift Every Voice and Sing, Um, the lyrics written by James Weldon Johnson and the music written by his brother, uh, J. Rosamond Johnson, I came across a sculpture titled Lift Every Voice and Sing, sculpted by the Harlem Renaissance sculptor Augusta Savage. Uh, Augusta Savage was born in Florida on February 29, 1892, and she died in 1962, and I was not familiar with her work, um, and so this also, there's always more to learn in every aspect of life, so I was very interested in learning about her. From an early age, Savage was sculpting and using uh, the modeling technique, which I learned is it's not carving out, out of clay, but it's adding clay on to forms to, to, uh, to make her sculptures. Um, as a young adult, she gained admission to and studied at Cooper Union. That's a picture of her right up there, here in New York City, um, which was hi- highly unusual uh, at that time. She had been denied. Uh, she had been accepted into an art program in France, but ended up not going because of her color. People did not want to room with her. There would be other white girls there, and they did not want to room with her. So this became something that was actually written up in the papers. I learned, but uh, they still never changed their mind on that. So she she was not able to attend that that school. But she devoted herself to um, art education in addition to her own sculpting work and, and opened and established the Harlem Community Arts Center. And she mentored young artists such as Jacob Lawrence and others. In 1937, she was commissioned to create a sculpture for the 1939 World's Fair in New York City. And she wanted to pay tribute to the lyricist uh, and composer, the Johnson Brothers, and lift every voice. Uh, so she titled the and the song that they wrote. So she titled her sculpture after the song. Um, it was not called that when it was at the World's Fair. The World's Fair committee decided that they wanted to call it the Harp, which she never really appreciated. <laughs> she wanted it to be called what she called it, the Creator. But um, that's an example of what happens in our society when someone else feels that they know better than the person creating, you know. Um, So I was really moved when I saw this, and I I don't know how well this uh, sculpture really translates here. It stands over six feet tall. So I would encourage you to, to go look online for photographs of it. It was actually the most photographed Sculpture in this contemporary art sculpture garden at the fair that year. But the frame of the harp that's coming up here is the arm and hand of God with 12 singers in various sizes to form the shape of the harp, the harp strings. And the youth at the base is holding the music that reads that's titled lift every voice and sing. So this is her tribute to the song. To me Augusta Savage has captured the spirit of faith and justice in community life. That life is founded on and upheld by the arm of God. This image is powerful beyond words and Upon seeing the photo, I wanted to know where I could go and see this sculpture in person. But I learned that that's not possible. Due to a lack of funds uh, after the fair, in order to have it cast in bronze, which would make it something that would be long-lasting, and due to a lack of funds to even be able to pay for some place to store, the plaster version of it, the sculpture was destroyed at the end of the World's Fair. And that, just, that was just heartbreaking. So we see here that um, there's a wide-ranging ra- ranging impact of poverty. We often think about uh, food and shelter, and having enough clothing when we think of people who are impoverished. But here, there was not having the money to to make in a more permanent form this expression of art which would have communicated so much to the masses. And so everyone, everyone is deprived. Everyone becomes impoverished in some way when, when, um, when poverty keeps us from expressing, um, you know, what I, what I think this, this, uh, this expresses here. And it, it sort of makes us think in a broader way about um, the impact of our practices and our economic injustices that occur in the world. The significance to our community is that we as humans are flawed and often have little understanding of the impact of our decisions, like the impact of the decision to destroy this sculpture. But upheld by the hand of God and upheld by our ability, which we're going to sing here, I see, to be able to continue to sing this song, Lift Every Voice and Sing, we can march on and continue to work for economic justice, uh, justice in all sorts of ways, and become more and more intentional in lifting every voice to sing.
2: Hello. I hope everyone's good this morning. Um, For those who don't know me, I'm Ava. I'm James and Karim's daughter. And I've been at this congregation for quite a while. Um, (laughs) Carl, uh, Carl told me that I would be doing something today, and that I would be expressing and showing you guys someone who has had an impact on me, left an imprint on my life, and how they've inspired me to do better. From the first time I heard James Baldwin speak, I loved him. He was a huge figure in the civil rights movement even while he was abroad in France. My dad introduced me to him when I was in my early teens. My dad told me how the way he spoke to people, especially white people, to listen and really think about their opinions, thoughts, and facts. Even in the the face of racist affronts, he would always remain composed. He knew that a white person could never fully understand the life of a black person and he would calmly and powerfully drop facts to to counter dangerous ignorance. This is probably one of the most known interviews of Baldwin, but I love it because it was the first thing I heard of him and it powerfully spoke to me. On the Dick Cavett Show in 1968, James Baldwin says, I was discussing the difficulties and obstacles and the very real danger of death thrown up by this man society when a Negro, when a black man attempts to become a man. I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only conclude what they feel from the state of their institutions. Mm -hmm. I know, I don't know whether the labor unions or their bosses really hate me. That doesn't matter, but I know that I'm not in their unions. I know that in the real estate lobby has any, I know that in the real estate lobby has anything against black people, of course. I don't know that, but what I know is that the real estate lobbies keep me in the ghetto. I don't know if the board education really hates black people, but I know that every textbooks that they give my children to read and the schools that we have to go to. Now, this is evidence. You want me to act on faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, and my children on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Baldwin spoke these truths, and that is still largely applied today. It doesn't mean that the life is meaningless or depressing. It's about how these bitter truths can make us blossom into people who can bring more knowledge, empathy, critical thinking, and awareness to the dialogue. From that dialogue, we can decide to take action and to make necessary changes happen so we can have real justice. We as Christians are called upon to take action and confront evil in like Psalms 82, verse 3 to 4, the New International Version. Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the depressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. We have our work cut out for us. Now let's speak and take action.
3: I was Hoping there'd be a stool. Uh, The children of children, by the time they're half-grown, have habits like rabbits and young of their own. The children of children from their mama's laps hop down to the ground to be taken in traps. The children of children are trapped in dark skins to stay in and play in a game no one wins. The children of children, while so young and sweet, all damned and programmed for future defeat. The children and our children are trapped by adults who fail them, then jail them to hide the results. The children of children are not able to cope with systems that twist them and rob them of hope. The children of children, all sinned and ashamed, Pairing and bearing, and who do you blame? The children of children cry out every day. They beg you for rescue. And what do you say? Uh, that's a poem by Oscar Brown Jr. I, I heard it for the first time as a teenager uh, when we finally got cable and I could watch the Deaf Poetry Jam. <laughs> Uh, which for a young kid growing up in the Texas Panhandle uh, was a a window into a world of experiences that weren't a part of my world and voices that were very much not a part of my church or my religious experience. Uh, But it it planted a seed uh, because I was just learning at the time that you didn't have to actually have any intentionality to live a segregated life in America. Uh, So I went to school and I studied theology at ACU and like you do, I studied church history. Which is a hard pill to swallow. Uh, and that put me on a path to try to study the history of race and, and the history of class and the history of colonialism, which doesn't take very long to learn. Those are not unrelated to church history. Uh, and at the time, it was very popular to be prophetic. So that's what I was trying to be on any platforms they would let me. Uh, and I. You know, I, I, I tried to speak out on these issues and, and be an ally and be an advocate, let everybody know, you know, I'm, I'm one of the good ones. <laughs> uh, and after a while, I came back to this poem, and, and it convicted me. It made me feel a little insecure, made me feel more than a little defensive, uh, because it made me feel like that, that character in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the one I'm talking about where he says, Lord, did, did I not prophesy in your name? and in your name, post a lot of really challenging thoughts on social media. <laughs> and, and it's not unfair that Jesus might say, do I know you? Uh, because you, you come to learn that the same thing you can say about Jesus, you can say about the oppressed, uh, which is that studying about someone's not the same thing as knowing them. Uh, and I knew what to say when I was critiquing the church as a prophet. But I didn't know what to say as a, as a friend of the oppressed. Uh, but that was years ago. I've, I've been in New York now about 10 years. And this poem is a lot better description of the people I do church with now in the Bronx. Uh, so I come back to it this last week preparing for whatever this is that I'm doing now. Uh, and it convicted me again. Made me feel a little insecure. Made me feel a little defensive. Reminded me of it. There's a great quote from David Foster Wallace. He says, the truth will set you free, but not until it's finished with you. And I I don't think this poem is quite finished with me yet. Uh, And to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure it's going to be. If for no other reason than because I was born with a Babylonian passport. But... I do think that you can say the same thing about Jesus that you can say about the oppressed, which is that the more I come to know you, the more I realize how poorly I've loved you up till now. And when the children of children cry out, I'm at a stage of life that I'm pretty convinced I'm not the rescuer in this poem. But maybe we can do the work uh, that you might get invited to sit down and cry out together.
4: Good morning, all. And for those of you who don't know me, which would be surprising unless you're visiting. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Dr. Mary Joseph, and I'm one of the elders here. I I just want to talk a little bit about I don't like to talk about myself, but this is an occasion that I think warrants it. But first I want to tell you a little story that triggered my thinking in this direction. I have a friend slash colleague that lives in Texas and she comes to New York every now and then for additional training. And we were both at one of these additional training and um, So uh, when she went back, she called me up and extremely frustrated and, you know, and her concern was about health equity for people of color, but specifically for black people. And she says, um, Mary, do do you know how to take care of a black person? And I'm like, well, of course I do. I take care of them all the time. Um, I am a nurse, for those of you who don't know. Um, And she says, well, you know, I'm just not sure about all this, she says. And uh, I said, well, can you just kind of start from the beginning? What are you talking about? And she says, well, have you read the book, uh, Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome? I said, what? She said, Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome, have you read the book? I haven't even heard of the book, (laughs) let alone reading it. So she says, you need to read that book, and you need to think about this book when you're helping people of color and black people. I said, okay. (laughs) So needless to say, I got off the phone and I went to Amazon and ordered the book. (laughs) Um... By definition, or should I, I, let me just start by saying that term, post-traumatic slave syndrome, was coined by Dr. Joy DeGruy um, to describe multi-generational trauma and injustices experienced by African-Americans from the dawn of slavery to our present time, including all the deaths and abuse Brutality by um, various police in various states. By definition, she says it's a condition um, that a population experienced uh, multi generational traumas resulting from centuries of slavery and continues to experience the oppression and institutionalized racism today. This includes conditions, and this is the part that really hit me hard. She says conditions is, be- is believed to be real or imagined. Doesn't matter if the person imagined it, as long as they feel connected to it. Um, and it, it, so the statement says it includes conditions um, that is believed. Real or imagine that the benefits of society in which one lives is not accessible to them. And I was just blown away by that statement alone. So I started reflecting on my own family health history. And as I said, I don't talk much about myself, but my family on both sides we, have, we suffer from hypertension and cardiovascular disease. My next birthday is in a couple of weeks. And at that time, I would have outlived both of my parents. So you can imagine, they died in their 60s, but much younger than I am now. <laughs> uh, My mom was very, very vocal about not going to a conventional doctor. She just thought they were, did not have her best interest of, at heart, that they were going to give her medicine, and it didn't matter whether it worked or not. And she didn't think it was going to work. So, you know, here I am, a nurse, and I'm supposed to encourage my mother to go to the doctor and take the medicine. And so the first major situation that occurred as a result of her not going was this massive, massive nosebleed. Um, And at that time, she took the medicine. She said, Mary, I'm not taking any more of this medicine. I said, "Uh uh-huh, you start feeling better now. She says, she looked into my eyes, piercing my whole being, and she says, you've become just like them. To this day, I still feel that, and I hear her voice. So, so, well, anyway, (laughs) fast forward. (laughs) She stopped taking the medicine she's doing her own thing and she's coming along fine. And then one day I got a call. Mom is in the hospital. She had this massive, massive stroke that went on for days. To help her recover, I literally had to get photographs of each one of us. We, she has six children. And Talk to her about who each one was, for her to get some recognition. So now, as you know, as she re- begins to recover, I said, "No, so you have to take the medicine." And I kind of rearranged my life to make sure she lives with me because the the options were for her to go to a nursing home. Or be in an elevated building, a building with an elevator. So I said, that's not a problem for me. I could get I'm in a building with an elevator, so I'll just get a bigger place. And so th- for the last couple of years of her life, she lived with me. But th- taking the medicine was always a struggle. Turned out she was also diabetic and did not know that she was diabetic. So when the doctors asked me, how long has she been a diabetic, I said, what? I didn't know. She wasn't going to any doctor. (laughs) So uh, long story short, health equity is not always about lack of access. It's about the deep fear that people feel that stops them. I'm better off by myself than to go have them uh, experiment on me, right? So, um, as a church community, how do I see us helping? And at first I thought, (laughs) what can we do, (laughs) you know? But I, I think to continue to provide safe space for people to be able to tell their stories, And also, as they tell their story, to encourage them to name the hurt. What is it that's hurting you? Why is this story? Why do I need to hear this story, right? And if there is, if it is appropriate, then we ought to offer forgiveness. But the last thing we want to do, and never ever do, is to sugarcoat the problem. The problem is real, people are suffering, and we need to be a part of the solution. So, uh, that's as much as I would like to say, you know, but, There is a lot of talk about health equity, and it is an issue, it's a real issue. But I don't think the research at this point that I have read covers the fear that people feel. You know, it's always about there's not enough doctors, not enough nurse practitioners, and so on. There is no clinic in this neighborhood, and so on. But then, what about the people who have access But they are afraid to go because they don't think they're going to be treated right. right, And what can we do about that? Thank you for listening.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Sister Marriott. Um, I'm so appreciative of all the, the voices <clears throat> and you hear the significance, and um, you hear the love, and you hear the testimonies, and you hear the hearts. Uh, I am obviously not Margaret Withers, um, and she was uh, scheduled to uh, reflect on something. Uh, she's not feeling well. We're gonna. We wish her well, and as we uh, pray for her, uh, she has a cold. Uh, and brother Scott. So I'm gonna read what she wrote. Um, if that's okay. This is from, my glasses on here, from the book Americana by Shemandana, Sheminda, Shemanda, Shemanda. Agoze Adiche. Oh, you, you, got it. Sorry, you got it. Great. Um, it's a novel about a Nigerian woman who came to the U.S. to go to college and her experience with race. <laughs> She argues that when there's only a single story about a group of people, it robs them of their dignity. The single story reduces people, rendering them incomplete, flat, and one-dimensional. She says, show people as one thing, as only one thing over and over and over again And that is what they become. Power is the ability not to just tell the story of another person, but to make it the definitive story of that person. A single story creates stereotypes or incomplete stories of who someone is. Ultimately, it robs people of dignity. It emphasizes how we are different rather than similar. What is your default position or narrative about someone when you see them? When I was growing up, I started to go to a church of Christ with a neighbor. This really upset my mom, who didn't understand why I would go to church. But beyond the stability the church provided me, one key reason I went is that the story that I told myself was that they had to, had to love and accept me because I was a Christian. I was their sister in Christ. And what a comfort that story is to me. Naive, sure, but there is something truthful about it. We are all in God's family, and by the grace of God, we can love others. What she taught me was to be aware Of the stories that I told myself of who someone is and to instead try to be open to be curious to a different story because stories have the power to restore dignity and by God's grace we can also learn to love those who have different stories than our own we are all living in the same story of God's love and grace and ultimately that's what matters the most.
5: I, I felt uh, an excitement today um, rehearsing with the chorus. Um, I felt excited also um, to come to church. Uh, my friend Melanie said, oh, I, said, I feel so excited. I don't know why. She said, oh, because you're off next week. That's why you're excited. <laughs> well, I am off next week and I am excited about that. But I'm also excited that we have this uh, lovely um, service today uh, around black history. But, uh, because we're singing the songs that I'm used to, all of these things, but black history is American history. And I would love to incorporate these type of services and these type of songs throughout the year because it is American history, okay? Amen, that's my, that's my testimony on that. <laughs> now, I have a few other things to say. Um, I chose uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, at, oh wait, I'm sorry. Before I, before I talk about Gwendolyn, because I saw Seth, I just need to say this. Um, when he read his poem by Oscar Brown, It really excited me because my parents were friends with Oscar Brown. He's from Chicago and I was um, friends with his daughter Africa and oh gosh it was just a great time going to his home, hearing poems, playing um, musical instruments and it's just everything. It was just an everything time. Um, and also, um, Lift Every Voice and Sing, I went to an HBCU, the very first HBCU, Wilberforce University in Ohio, um, named after William Wilberforce, the great abolitionist. And where the, where the um, school sits is um, where the Underground Railroad went and lift every voice and sing. I sang in the choir in in college, and we used to sing that song all the time. So that was really amazing. All right, so Gwendolyn Brooks, she is a great poet, also born, well, she was born in the South, but she moved to Chicago when she was very, very young. I think like, Five or six. I have it all here, but I can't do everything. But anyway, <laughs> um, she was a, a, a wonderful, wonderful poet, and I want to just tell a short story um, about her. I think this is not the person I was. I was aiming for, but this book. I'm a teacher here in uh, New York City, and this book landed on my desk miraculously, like. A couple of weeks ago and um, and then there was just and then I'm going to Lincoln Center to hear someone speaking about uh, Gwendolyn Brooks another person that um, is the daughter of uh, my childhood uh, uh, pediatrician so I don't know It, it it was just all these things and then in Chicago she lived down the street from my great-grandmother, and I also lived in that house uh, for some time. And her name is Gwendolyn. My mother's name is also Gwendolyn. And my grandmother and Gwendolyn Brooks were around the same age. And literally, she lived down the block. We don't know if they knew each other, but we want to say that my grandmother may have been inspired by that name and named my mother Gwendolyn because, I don't know, I just feel like this was meant for me to be standing here talking about this. So I'm going to say that my mother was named (laughs)
0: Gwendolyn (laughs) Brooks.
5: And the reason why my grandmother probably did not tell my mother that is because she was raising four kids on the south side of Chicago. Um, she was a school teacher herself, and and um, my grandfather was also a school teacher. But um, she didn't have time to sit and tell you, "Well, I named you Gwendolyn because such and such and such." She was trying to survive in the 1940s with four kids and being a school teacher, and and how she um, had a full meal for them five days a week, and she worked, um, and she cooked. Every day, I I still won't, can't understand, because I couldn't, I can't do it for two kids. But anyway, (laughs) that's another story. I would like to say, uh, I'm gonna say uh, one of her poems, but she was such an excellent, excellent writer that when she was nine years old, she wrote a piece at school. And the school teacher was so, Uh, Did not believe that she wrote it. She literally said uh, She sent a note home to Gwendolyn's mother and it read uh, Miss school teacher sends a letter home. It reads Gwendolyn is a cheat. She plagiarized Her mother read it and said Gwendolyn is a cheat That is not so Mama grabs her hat her black purse and gloves. She marches Gwendolyn to the school And Mrs. Brooks defends her precious child. She said, and and this was in 1925. That had to take a lot of guts for a black woman to go to a school on the south side of Chicago to defend her her child to a white school teacher. That took a lot of guts. She says, Miss school teacher, I must protest. Gwendolyn does not need to cheat. She writes and speaks with the finest ease. Test her now, and we will see. Test her right now on the same thing and see. Gwendolyn considers the insulting charge, and she writes a poem in, in proud, prim letters. And right then and there, she just, there's a poem, forgive and forget. If others neglect you, forget. Do not sigh for after all they'll select you in times by and by if their taunts cut and hurt you they are sure to regret and if in time they desert you forgive and forget 1928 and she was she was a mere child Now, I would like to fast forward to the 2000s, where we still have to defend our children. I don't know if everyone knows this, but Dr. Martin Luther King's born name was Michael. It was not Martin. Does everybody know that? Okay, it was not Martin. So I don't want to embarrass my children, but one of my children told his teacher that. And his teacher pretty much called him a liar and said it wasn't true. And, uh, you know, he he felt very bad, felt bad about that. We had to go and defend our child from that and other things that happened. Uh, because these little... Uh, I don't know, just, just what a, you can't be right, you little black boy. You can't be right, you little black girl. You, you don't know what you're talking about. So there are teachers that do that, and we still have to defend today, and we are still doing that. Now, on the other hand, I had a teacher uh, in high school, and this is another w- reason why Gwendolyn Brooks inspires me. I had a teacher in high school to tell me you are a wonderful writer and she was a white woman she was a, and I still remember that 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 sticks in my head like school teachers can inspire or they can tear you down so that 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 inspired me and it inspires me to continue with my writing and to um and to get it Publish. My mother was also a good writer. So perhaps is also a good writer. So perhaps that's another connection to the Gwendolyn name. And my mother saw that. So that's why I need to say that about Gwendolyn Brooks and her and her amazing mother. Now, I would like to read one of her quotes. Another quote: We are each other's harvests. We are each other's business. We are each other's magnitude and bond. We live not for battles won, live not for the end of the song. We live in the along. For me, that means this life is a journey, it's not the beginning or the end. We live right now in this community, in that in-between. And what are we doing with each other in the in-between? How are we holding each other accountable? How are we holding each other up? How are we inspiring one another? Because that, that, your words inspire. Everyone here is a teacher. So we all can inspire. Now, I would like to um, read, I would like to pray. Shall we pray? Lord, please bless and surround us at this time and be with us as we um, think about everything that we're learning today. Francis, and and please be with Francis Franklin and his health. He's a family friend of wondrous Burns. Please bless her as well as she lives in assisted living in Kansas. We pray for healing for Justina Rodriguez, who had a recent heart valve procedure. Healing for Camilla as she is in chemo treatment once a week. Continue to heal and strengthen Sister Denise, Sister Melanie, all of those who need physical, emotional, and mental healing. Also, uh, Eddington's son who was kidnapped in Haiti. Please bring him home safely. Heal and deliver us from all of the mass shootings and show us a better path. Give us safety and give us peace. Continue to bless the families and those affected by the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Lord, I pray for generations that have been affected by racial hate and the ongoing normalized, and invisible effects of white supremacy. I pray for those who have been oppressed because of their gender and their sexual identity. Bless and heal those who have been oppressed by their lack of housing and because of poverty. Let those who suffer realize that who the sun sets free is free indeed. Heal the broken and bind their wounds. Strengthen the weak. Wipe every tear from their eye, mighty Jesus. This we ask in Jesus' all-powerful and healing name. Amen. Thank you.
6: Hello, everyone. So I'm going to be talking about Fantastic Negrito. He is a three-time Grammy Award-winning artist, Um, And I just love talking about music, so this is kind of fun for me to talk about. But he is an artist that's this great mix of, like, blues and funk and rock and soul. and. Anyways, this is his most recent album called White Jesus, Black Problems. And the name alone is uh, pretty convicting to me. But it's um, a story about his... Grandparents from the love story of his grandparents from seven generations prior. Um, During the pandemic, he did what a lot of us did, which is do all the things we never have time for. And for him, that looked like uh, discovering his ancestry through Ancestry.com. He didn't know a lot about his heritage, but came to find out that his grandmother, great grandmother, great great whatever, grandmother, Her name was Elizabeth Gallimore, and she was a white indentured servant from Scotland who came over in the mid-1700s. And she fell in love with a black slave who we don't know what his name is because of the times, Um, but they went on to have several mixed-race children. So even though it was illegal at the time for them to be together... They lived in this common law marriage, which fantastic Negrito calls the most punk rock thing ever. <laughs> Elizabeth ran from the law for unlawfully cohabitating with a Negro slave, and their mixed race children were able to inherit their mother's side, which meant that they only needed to do, or they had to do, seven years of indentured servitude uh, for their freedom. And what that caused was then generation after generation of, uh, in his family, of registered free Negroes in the South at that time. Um, and so generation after generation, which fam- finally led to Fantastic Negrito. Um, so this album retells all of these events, each song is taking on a different aspect of the story until the final song, Virginia's Soul, where he repeats over and over again, freedom will come. I know one day, I'm sure that freedom will come. So, um, As Christine was saying earlier, talking about black history is American history, is our history, um, as Fantastic Negrito reflects on his heritage, where he comes from, it calls on for me to also see my place in this story and see and think about where I came from, what's been passed down to me, where I am today, and also where I am going. Um, I see this beautiful love story as a story of perseverance, and it's also um, one of the, there's several compelling parts of the story to me. But one of them being that it's a story of a white woman who puts aside her privilege for love that created freedom for years and years to come. Um, She had no idea the ripple effects that would be created for generations to come. And it's a reminder to me and I hope to all of us that our actions, whether or not they seem significant, can create meaningful change.
7: When um, Carl asked me to to share in these uh, meditations today, I thought back to the last substantial b- book that I read about uh, with, in this regard, a wonderful book that I would recommend to anyone, David W. Blight's book, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. It came out in 2018. I think I read it in um, 21. It's maybe appropriate because February, um, this, this February, is the 205th anniversary of the birth of Frederick, Frederick Douglass. February is also, this February is also the 128th anniversary of his death at the age of 77. He was uh, born to an enslaved mother from whom he was separated as an infant. His father, the father evidently was the slave master at the plant in the plantation. He grew up in slavery in Maryland until he successfully ex- escaped at the age of twenty and finally reached New York City. And uh, soon uh, took Douglas as his new last last name. It was about seven years later that he uh, published. In 1845, um, his um, narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, which was the first of three autobiographies that he that he published, that was became very influential. He became one of the in the 19th century, in both both in the pre pre Civil War and post Civil War, but in the uh, he became very important and famous. But in pre Civil War times, was one of the most uh, imported of voices of abolition, uh, both here in the United States and abroad, which he had to escape abroad for periods of time because of uh, the threats against him. He became uh, one of the best-known lecturers uh, around through the 19th century. I believe it's said that he actually was the most photographed uh, person in the 19th century after uh, photography was was introduced, and his uh, picture, that lion, hair, and all of that sharp-cut features and and so forth, are are and and um, stare directly into the eyes of the of the uh, the viewer, became very uh, powerful as a, as a, a voice of of um, of abolition. He, in the appendix to his narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, he talked about his Christianity, which he came to in the time that he was teaching himself to read before he finally escaped, and uh, even developed his own small congregation, which also served as a place where he taught literacy as well but he has a statement about Christianity that's very, very powerful there. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. He said I... He condemned the corrupt... uh, I'm sorry, I I here, here's where i supposed to go. He, he said that the, the man who wields the blood-clotted cowskin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The slave auctioneer's bell and the church-going bell chime in with each other and the bitter cries of the heartbroken slave are drowned in the religious shouts of his pious master as the pastor covers his infernal business with the garb of Christianity. The slaveholder attends with pharisaical strictness to the outward forms of religion and at the same time neglects the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy and faith, just a little selection. I'm an old man now, I grew up in the 50s, in the South, in Texas, in small towns. I grew up in the Jim Crow South, in which not exactly what he's describing, but a derivation and descendant of that was still, still today to some extent is, a pattern of Christianity. And I can remember the process, not that I remember it in detail, and I wish I did remember it in much greater detail, of the light, coming on from reading at one point that narrative long before the time of David Blight's uh, uh, biography and realizing that so much of what he said still applied to the the way that that churches were separated from each other and the way that there was simply no interaction between Negroes and and white folks, between their churches, between the whole system, between the schools. Everybody fought over busing, but when I started high school, I was bussed past a Negro high school to the white high school on the other side of town. It. It's astonishing how recent, uh, <laughs> at least in my own life life, these the reality that that Douglas described before the Civil War still continued to have a powerful effect in the shaping of society and of the ways that it was then it functioned, and how he saw so clearly how absolutely opposed it was to. The teachings of Christianity, something that the spokespeople all the time simply justified and lived within. And I'm grateful for the role that his narrative played for me in just beginning to turn on the lights to see that what I was living in and seeing all around me was. not Christianity, and that it had to be understood and known in a radically different way, and not as this climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, the grossest of all libels. And so um, even though really knowing Frederick Douglass's life came much longer after, still hearing his voice for me, began, along with some other things and the influence of my parents and other things like that, began a a journey that is still going on, but is exceedingly important for me and the whole arc of my own life. And I'm grateful to him as part of the testimony of my life.
8: Good morning. As our first black president, among many other achievements, Barack Obama is and will always be a giant when anybody speaks about black history. I'd like to reflect on a portion of his speech commemorating a significant event in black history, the marches at Selma, Alabama. Now, I've seen President Obama speak in person, and let me tell you, I am not going to shortchange you by trying to read this excerpt myself. So if you'll indulge me, I'm going to pause for a minute and let Mr. Obama do what he does best. Well, oh, sorry, Mr. Obama. I guess I have to read it. <laughs> By the way, this, this is available online. I strongly encourage you to watch the entire speech yourself. He does it much better than I will. We gather here to honor the courage of ordinary Americans willing to endure billy clubs and the chastening rod, tear gas and the trampling hoof. Men and women who, despite the gush of blood and splintered bone, would stay true to their North Star and keep marching towards justice. They did as scripture instructed. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And in the days to come, they went back again and again. When the trumpet call sounded for more to join, the people came. Black and white, young and old, Christian and Jew, waving the American flag and singing the same anthems full of faith and hope. A white newsman, Bill Plant, who covered the marches then and who is with us here today, quipped that the growing number of white people lowered the quality of the singing. (laughs) Again, he delivers it better than me, but you know. To those who marched, though, those old gospel songs must have never sounded so sweet. In time, their chorus would well up and reach President Johnson, and he would send them protection and speak to the nation, echoing their call for America and the world to hear, we shall overcome. What enormous faith these men and women had, faith in God, but also faith in America. Those Americans who crossed this bridge, they were not physically imposing, but they gave courage to millions. They held no elected office but they led a nation. They marched as Americans who had endured hundreds of years of brutal violence, countless daily indignities, but they didn't seek special treatment, just the equal treatment promised them almost a century before. What they did here will reverberate through the ages, not because the change they won was preordained, not because their victory was complete, but because they proved that nonviolent change is possible that love and hope can conquer hate. Now, I'll be honest, growing up in South Carolina, despite my parents' best efforts to raise me as anything but a bigot, I didn't know the first thing about Selma, Alabama. It was never once discussed in school or at home. So why does it mean anything to me today? And Why should it mean anything to our church community? It means something to me for the same reason I think it should mean something to our community. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with, among other blessings, the following Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who were persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I think most Christians nod their heads sagely when passages about being persecuted and reviled for righteousness' sake on Jesus' account are read or contemplated. Imagining centuries of Christian persecution in our history, and they aren't wrong. I can only imagine that these passages take on added significance for African-Americans who frequently endure such persecution both for righteousness in Jesus' sake as well as the color of their skin. So I think, on, I think some of the parallels I see between what Jesus said and the nonviolent action taken by the marchers at Selma that Mr. Obama was commemorating are pretty obvious. But I've always been puzzled by the statement, blessed are the meek. Meek sounds like weak, doesn't it? At least that's how it's always sounded in my ears. Quiet, gentle, easily imposed upon, submissive. How can it be that by being quiet, gentle, and submissive, you can somehow inherit the earth? Were the marchers at Selma meek? Maybe so. They took the punishment that the authorities arrayed against them dished out in a way that could be described as meek as we understand it. But look again. It doesn't look like meek to me. Gentle, maybe, but not quiet. And certainly not submissive. Is it meek to keep coming back again and again for more, as Mr. Obama noted? As it turns out, I think the answer is yes, but not in the way we understand meek today. I concluded some time ago that Jesus didn't mean weak when he said meek. And when I did some research, I found that the word translated as meek in Matthew 5 can be interpreted to mean exercising God's strength under his control. It was noted that the same Greek word was sometimes used to describe a war horse, a deadly animal trained to exercise its skills under the guidance of its master. This is what I think Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the meek. You're blessed when you channel God's strength by rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, and constant in prayer. Love God, love your neighbor, love your enemy. In this way, it is possible to endure billy clubs and the chastening rod, tear gas in the trampling hoof. The marchers at Selma, quote, Comforted themselves with the final verse Of the final hymn they sung No matter what may be the test God will take care of you Lean, weary one, upon his breast God will take care of you They embodied what Jesus meant When he said, blessed are the meek And in doing so They gave courage to millions They led a nation They proved that nonviolent change is possible That love and hope can conquer hate Amen.
0: Thank you all. Thank you all so much. Uh, it's just uh, been a great time of just reflection. Check out my shades here. Um, uh, but I have to, I have to say uh, my wife, Christine, with Martin Luther King, uh, he was named Michael on his birth certificate, but his father uh, was so influenced by Martin Luther that he changed his name to Martin Luther when he was five years old. But, and his father changed his own name. And, Martin and his father changed his own name to Martin Amen. See, 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 these are the, these are the, and now they do, amen, amen. Um, so you got to, you know, this marriage the dictates you got to do those things, you know. That, um, but we're, um, you know, someone asked me recently, you know, so what's your Black History sermon going to be? I mean, you're, you're going to your Black History, you know, you are about Black History, okay. Now you're going to you're going to make the case. People are talking, now you're going to hit it home. Well, um, no. I, I think um, if one is not moved and, and convicted by some of the reflections, and let me, to be, let me be honest, let me be clear here, and, and I guess, you know, and those reflections weren't easy. I think I need to say that again. Those, those reflections weren't easy for people. You know, we've heard stories of families growing up, ways of thinking, and the, and those actually ask something of people. And I am so grateful that people uh, decided to reflect and share that. One of the things I always love uh, this this quote from uh, Audrey uh, Audrey Lord she says. Um, I think I hear here. I do my glasses. He says. She says, what are the tyrannies you swallow day by day and attempt to make your own until you sicken and die of them still in silence? And that's a has many different kind of a framing, but it's a reflection on the tendency for some time, for some people, to, because of oppression and domination, that one way to get over that is for you yourself to become an oppressor. If you oppress me and you're dominant, well, I can say I have two choices. I can kind of try to change it, try to change you, or I can become an oppressor and a dominator, therefore assuring that I won't be oppressed in that way ever again. And I think she's, um, oh, there she goes, there she goes. And I think she was speaking to some of that, and it's a challenge. White supremacy does not depend upon white people. Um, You know, uh, anti-gender inclusion does not depend upon people who are are trans. I mean, everybody has the potential all the time to exact the same amount of oppression that they have received. And which is why I think when reflecting on black history, and these are loving air quotes, they're not cynical air quotes, um, I think it's important to find that significance and what that means to a person personally and to a faith community. And I think part of the scandal is not me up here with a leather jacket, not talking about, you know, cultural issues, but the scandal of saying, Jesus says we are a family. That's it. And as I look at you know that's why I love some of the uh, the words Paul is in the Corinthians about the the one body many parts. You know, I mean, you know they have troubles in Corinth, in Corinth and they were dealing with some angels and people were talking about hey, my gift is better than your gift and your gift is, and then Paul said oh, no we're all part of the same, you know, we you know what that And so sort of the challenge with that with that text it, briefly is just sort of, you know, the the lesser parts, that's where my mind goes. I'm like, okay, well, who are the lesser parts so I can be I can help them shine? Who who's lesser? You know, since I'm the greatest you go first, that kind of thing. And even then, the tyrannies I swallow with that text are hard to overcome because I still want to oppress somebody by living, you know you know what I mean? So when I look at history, significance, community, I'm always standing. Paul says, you are the body of Christ. And when I let that scandal sink in, people are different different frames, different histories, different kind of frames. You know, it doesn't mean one can say, oh, well, see, it doesn't matter. We're all the same. Christ. No. It doesn't mean you disregard the past, the harm. You name those things in order to reflect on them, to heal them, to do justice. You know, Sometimes you want to skip over and say, oh, hey, why are you talking about all this racial stuff? We're all the same. And, you know, you know. But I think when you don't name those things, you actually do that text and I think do our faith and do our love for each other at this service. We are the body of Christ. And we are connected, our interconnectedness. If one suffers, we all suffer. All of us suffer. The history of harm is actually, yeah, yeah, there's a degrees of the harm, institutionally, culturally. But in the Lord, that impacted all of us, amen? Therefore, the beauty also impacts all of us, not in a hierarchy, but together. So culminating these significant reflections of person, personality, communal reflections of why these things and why is black history important to a a faith community, I just want us to reflect on the table and the communion of each other with our Lord, and how we feel about that. So, when we come down and to receive our our communion, come down to the song, and we'll we'll bless it and we'll take it together. Is that okay? Can we, we can we play that play that number if we can? So let's we uh, bless the, the body and the cup. Lord, thank you for this uh, expression. As much as we try to fight, try to swallow the tyrannies and make them our own, we just keep saying no. No, no, no. Let the body, the blood, remind us of the no. To the tyrannies we want to make our own. In the name of the Lord, amen. And you can do them together. So for our benediction, by the way, I just wanted, um, for our discussion upstairs, I mean, there's some pizza. I always say, you know, to sort of, we're doing a part one here and the part two's up there. That's to get you up there. Um, so if that's going to get you up there, there's definitely be a part two. Uh, and that's pizza. Oh, and there's a discussion as well. So you can, you can rank them all, pizza part two in the discussion. Um, shall we stand for our benediction? And I just wanted to reflect on those, uh, those, those the community of those sacred words that we just heard about. Everyone can see we're together as we walk on by it. We fly like birds of a feather. I will tell no lie. All the people around us, they say, can they be that close? Just let me say for the record, we were given love in a family dose. No, we don't get depressed. Here's what we call our golden rule. Have faith in you and the things you do. You won't go
8: wrong as this is our family jewel.